work. Herbert's kids. The kids talk. Your monthly graphic novel review. Welcome back, kids, to part two of Daredevil Born Again. This is Angus. If you did not catch part one, I think you should head back to episode 13 of season two for Daredevil part one. In that, we covered a little Kirby kernel. We delved into the background of a writer and artist and had an in-depth discussion on the story arc and art. Major spoiler alert on that one. If you have any intention of reading Daredevil Born Again, I suggest you go ahead, pick up that graphic novel, give it a read, and come on back. In part two, JJ and I continue our discussion of the story arc and critique of the art, and we then delve into a little role-playing game inspiration and how this Daredevil Born Again story arc could be applied into a role-play game situation at the table. We hope you enjoy. Exactly. And he brings that noir style, especially when we're talking about scenes of the city, when he's moving through the city or it's snowing or it's raining, you get that sense of, you know, Miller's noir style. And you can actually see, even though this isn't Miller drawing, you can actually draw connections to Sin City. There's an aesthetic here that Mazzuccelli is able to tap that really is quintessential Miller. And I think that's what the beauty of this book is. But at the same time, he can very realistically and very warmly render a touching scene at Foggy's house with Gloriana making him breakfast or dinner. And the look of the place, the warmth, the colors that are there. And then just as quickly switching gears to seeing Kingpin and kingpins in these gray tones and he's illuminated by the monitors that he's reading the room is filled with smoke from his cigar recollection of things that are happening elsewhere or at another point in time rendered in beautiful gray tones and black and white all of this just so gosh i can't i can't say enough about it it's distinctly miller and i think mazzuccelli needs to be just really admired for his ability to render this what was so iconically daredevil of its time. Yes, JJ, and to complement what you're saying, interplay back and forth between J. Jonah Jameson and Ben Urch, and particularly in Urch's office and J. Jonah Jameson's office at the Daily Bugle. There are a couple conversations that take place, and it's either at dusk or early evening, where you have light coming into the office, and it is split up by the screens or the shades in that office, casting these different shadows and light. And again, you hearken back to Sin City as to what was to come there in the 90s, and this looked so much like that, in that vein, really utilizing shadow and light so well. But but still being very vibrant in the colors that were used and tastefully selected by Mazzuccelli here to complement the panels at any given time. Absolutely exquisitely done. Can't praise it enough, but those in particular, those scenes really resonate. This is signature Daredevil. This is signature Frank Miller. However, this is Mazzuccelli's work in complementing the vision 
of that daredevil world. Exactly. And he does some really interesting things with the pacing and the layout. And I'd love to be able to see the scripts of this because I can see Miller's directorial eye in this. I mean, we talked about in our early introduction of him that he did direct the, I think it was the 2009 film, The Spirit. You can see that coming to play here where he's probably working with Mezzicelli to create the layout. He does a really interesting thing where each of the issues or each of the chapters, depending on how you're reading this, start off with generally a few small panels to get you started. And then you come into a larger panel that takes place, like filling the screen. And in that one, he has a recurring theme. In the first few issues, it's all about Matt laying down. And typically he's in bed or sleeping. So in the early, right before the fall, he's in his apartment, he's comfortable, he's sprawled out in his bed. The next time you see him is after his house has been destroyed and he's living in a flat and he's in a smaller bed. He's a little more cramped. The next time you see him after that, he's asleep in an alleyway and he's all completely balled up. And what you get is the sense of Matt shrinking as he falls deeper and deeper into the hole. And that's a reoccurring visual element that is so well done. You know, as you were reading this, as as the comics were coming out, uh, it would be tough to see that, but reading it in a graphic novel form and being able to flip back and forth and seeing those recurring patterns happening is so cool. The pattern breaks after he's recovered. He's spending time in a mission, right? So again, we get a scene of him in bed in a mission. He's not all balled up. He's starting to come back. The very next issue, the big panel, is him. He's just knocked a punching bag off its chain and he's made his comeback. And then beginning the coda, when we get that scene, it's he and Karen in bed. And now he's supporting her as she deals with the withdrawal from her heroin addiction. Just absolutely masterful work. Great, indeed. And JJ also will say equally masterfully done was a sequence of panels. And again, I'll harken back to Frank Miller on Miller, the very short documentary about Frank's career, which was part of the DVD slash Blu-ray release for The Spirit, which I had reviewed, and Miller discussing his philosophy with regard to panel usage. And again, I had mentioned before his desire to, when we're talking about an epic event or moment, let's go wide. So we're going to take up the entire page wide. Now, mind you, it might be thin and it may be a stacked grouping of wide panels all together on a single page, but nonetheless, if it's epic, it's going wide. And the particular sequence, I'm that of Lieutenant Manolis calling Ben Urich to talk to him about what happened and to tell him his story, essentially providing Ben with that informed lead to then publish what actually transpired, framed our hero here. And that whole sequence of Manolis there in his hospital bed on the phone, Ben waiting by, trying to get the full story out of him to get the cooperation, get the thumbs up so they can go ahead and publish the story at the Daily Bugle saying, yes, we have a credible source. And then as that is all happening, you have the assailant working their way into the room, which ultimately it's that nurse 
that had been contracted by Kingpin to basically snuff out Manolis. That entire panel sequence from the facial expressions on Ben's face to the actions transpiring and the different shades of blue to show that, you know, it was very calm and dark in that that room and the phone being laid down by the pillow. Ben's face absolutely becoming distraught, hearing Manolis being strangled and life leaving him. Oh my gosh, another fantastic sequence and use of panels to depict an epic or game-changing event in the story arc. You know what? I think it's interesting. As I hear us talking about this, there's such a tight coupling between the story and the art. And I just imagine the two of these superstars working together on this to create such a incredible story visually cinematically in issue number 229 pariah i I want to describe the the opening sequence the first page you've got a tall panel that is an extreme close-up of matt murdoch's face and you literally just see his eye a little bit of hair and his nose and to the right of that you're basically getting the retelling of the origin of how he gained his powers and you know it's a stacked like you mentioned before it's a stacked series of panels and the first few are visually you're seeing matt save the man from being hit by the bus and then he sees the radioactive element that comes flying out and then every single panel after that is black you still have Matt's face to the side. As you go to the next page, it's pulled back a little bit, but now all of the individual panels to the right of that are black, and you're experiencing Matt's thoughts as he first comes to grips with his power. The next page, pulling back a little bit more on Matt, more of experiencing the first time he hears somebody talking to him and how loud it is, and using the words to fill the panel of what he's hearing and really emphasize how his senses have become so heightened and continuing on until you get a sense of he's having a conversation and there's a kiss and now we're in silhouette we've gone from black to a silhouette you see what we believe to be matt's forehead being kissed by a woman who has a chain around her neck and in the next panel we reveal that the chain has a cross on it a christian cross and what he's done there is shown us visually without any detail he's sensing that with his fingers and we go back to the black panels but what he's done in that not only has he retold the origin but he's personalized the origin of daredevil and he's also planted the seed for the return of his mother and then right after that we get the full page panel of matt in the fetal position tucked into a little corner of the panel as he's trying to sleep in an alley with several other people sprawled out in the alley also sleeping there it's a series of six or seven pages before you get to the main panel and you know as a as a reader of comics you're typically greeted with that big main panel on the first page we had to get six pages in to get to that but oh what a ride i mean it's it's just such an incredible incredible well-articulated element of storytelling. JJ, this is perhaps the best use of a flashback 
to very concisely familiarize the reader with the origin story of the main character. It's seldom that you see it done at this high of a level where it truly incorporates itself into the story arc narrative that you're to be experiencing here within this Daredevil Born Again, but doesn't belabor the point. I can't tell you how many times I read authors who come into already established characters and feel a need to go ahead and put their stamp on the origin story of the character and effectively retell it and go, oh my God, how many times do I have to see the origin story of Batman yet again? How many times do I have to go ahead and see the origin story of Spider-Man yet again? But here with Daredevil, I think Miller with Mazzuccelli do a brilliant job, like you said, JJ, of making this flashback the origin story. So if you were an uninitiated reader coming in cold, not even knowing who the heck Daredevil is, you're going to get the origin story but built into the overall story arc and then used effectively to, oh my gosh, lead up to the reveal of his mother as a nun nursing him back to health. Brilliant. Brilliant. Exceptionally well executed. Just phenomenal. I, I think we should stop and, and take a moment here. We've been gushing about Mezzicelli's art. We need to talk really quickly about Max Sheely's colors. The color palette reflects the scene. And we've seen this in other, other comics that we reviewed. The color palette reflects the scene. There are scenes when we're dealing with Augie and Gloriana, and they're bright and they're colorful. There's scenes where it's the city and it's bleak and it's drab. The use of color is intelligently applied on a case-by-case -case basis. You see that each page works well with itself. There's a page where Matt's mother is kneeling at his bedside and the colors are stark you know blue black calm colors as he recuperates with the gold of the cross but then the very next panel is one of the kingpin's operatives on the phone and her background is bright red just signaling to the reader danger danger and the next panel is Urich on a bench, and the bench almost looks like it's on fire because of the bright colors. And then again, tying in this Kingpin's lackey to the conversation with Urich and, you know, the danger that he's in. It's just the colors are so well done and so appropriately applied that it's just a phenomenal job. It's a complete package. All I can do is... Endorse 100% every one of your comments. I have nothing more to add. <laughs> I mean, you hit every salient point with regard to colors here. They were extremely tastefully done. Now, JJ, I would like to go to one subject in particular, and this tends to be one of your pet peeves because you are yourself an artist and you tend to be highly critical of inking jobs. Now, as I am interpreting the credits on this particular story arc. I believe David Mazzuccelli did his own inks, correct? I am fairly certain that he did. So as a result, there is an incredible amount of detail that is revealed in every one of these panels. So I cannot help but think, and also particularly at the end of this book, 
which we'll get into our different reading experiences of this, but I was privy to the pencils that were used in the evolution of this book, which shows Mazzuccelli's penciling work. And I was comparing it to what the fully realized panels look like. And they're really, to my unexpert eye, but I've got a pretty good eye for detail, I didn't see much loss of detail whatsoever. So I guess this really is a true testament that not only do we have an incredible artist, but one also who was very, very in it with respect to maintaining the detail of his own. And this is not to go against or put a knock on other really talented inkers out because Lord Jack Kirby had several different inkers and his favorite ones that really preserved the integrity of those original pencils. I think Mazzuccelli maintained the integrity of his original pencils for himself in this extremely well. Yes, for folks that are reading this in the graphic novel format and have the those extra hand-drawn pages, I think the key here is that Mazzuccelli's taking a very loose approach with the pencils and then doing all of the work with the inks and he's keeping it equally loose with the inks the lines are very relaxed he goes solid black when he needs to like in the case of the nun's habit i mean it's it's stark black but everything else is handled in such a a wonderful light way that you know he, he gives weight to lines that need it and leaves others just a bare just tracing i know that's a bad word to talk about when we talk about inking but just really just the light passing of a line just masterful work indeed indeed jj do you have any other thoughts with regard to the art or just to sum up how you would rate the effectiveness of Mazzuccelli's visual storytelling well if folks haven't gotten it by now i really love this book I love it on so many different levels. The story, the art, the color. It's just, it's quintessential sequential art storytelling. It's done so well. Now, I do have a caveat, though. (laughs) And you and I have talked about this offline. But the version that I read was uh, available on Hoopla. It was a collected edition of the story. And I think rightly so, you called out that issues 232 and 233 are sort of a coda. Because when you look at the end of 231, you have Ben Urich writing up his story. And that actually puts a close to the storyline. Matt has come up out of his depression and he's been reborn. He is that Phoenix reborn. That is the end of that storyline. But then you've got that coda, as you called it so appropriately, issues 232 and 233 that are this this kind of extra piece that dovetails so well. The reason I want to focus on this is In 1986, graphic novels as a a form of collected stories were still getting running in the U.S. And so when authors were writing stories for comics, there was a lot of bleed over. Stories were not so nicely contained. The fact that there was all these kind of loose threads that were wrapped up in the next two issues you know you really have to kind of read all of those together to to really appreciate the fullness of the story but because stories in comics are so continuous there are elements that kind of jump out at you when you only take a slice of the uh, of the whole stream like the fact that matt's sinking into depression and madness is so quick 
for terms of this story. You know, by the end of the first issue, I think, of the, or the first chapter, you know, Kingpin has blown up his house and he's you know, living elsewhere. It just seems so quick. But as you've pointed out, there are elements of that story, that descent, that started long before that. And they also included issue 226 as part of this storyline, because one, it's the first time Miller and Mezzicelli are working together, right? And it's so it is, it gives you more of that, you know, Matt's still on top of things, but you still see that paranoia. You know, how do you slice it, right? Adding insult to injury, the, the, the version that I was reading put issue 226 at the end of the story. And it was kind of like, a, oh, by the way, here's the issue that preceded all of this. And it didn't necessarily set up anything in the actual story, but we're like, hey, we're gonna include it here just so that for completeness sake. It's like, why didn't they put it in order? Yes, it wasn't necessarily the same plot, but it was a good prelude. I think it would be a perfect prelude and, you know, using this as a, a prelude and a coda, it just really worked well together. I mean, I don't understand why they did what they did. <laughs> I don't either. And, you know, the only for this particular graphic novel put together by Marvel, they felt a desire to, like you said, Jay, sake of completeness, we're throwing in issue 226 right here at the end, just so you can see that this was the first work that this dynamic duo had done together. And it, it does it far better service to have that be the first story that you read to then understand the feel of how these two very talented individuals work together. And oh, by the way, I felt that that particular story was really good in setting the tone rolling into the Born Again story arc. And to put a cap on this, I would just like to share with everyone the afterword by Frank Miller. And this is specifically on David Mazzuccelli and his contributions to this overall work. It's almost criminal how easy David makes it to write a script. He makes a three-dimensional stage of the individual panel, complete in authentic detail, nonetheless uncluttered, and utterly readable. He creates actors whose dramatic range is startling, whose best and most compelling moments are wordless. He's talked of writing his own comics. Keep your eye out for him. I will. Frank Miller, Los Angeles, 1987. Wow. How prophetic with respect to what Mazzuccelli would go on to do later in his career and how much Miller thought of his brand new collaborator there coming right off of having done Daredevil Born Again together. Incredible. I can't recommend this particular story highly enough. It really is one of those that is so well written. And even if you know nothing about Daredevil, as best as it can be for a story of the times, it's very well self-contained and gives you everything you need from beginning to end. Yes, and JJ, I'll add teen 17 years of age up just due to the violence, drugs, and sexual themes that occur throughout this story arc. What, what are your feelings along those lines? I have to agree with you on that. It is much more of an adult story and i think what you pointed out at the time was miller was also doing the dark knight returns and that was a much more adult 
comic story. We're seeing this shift is that, you know, there's a certain raising in the maturity level of comics in the mid to late 80s moving into the 90s. There's definitely this this branch of comics that were meeting the needs, the story needs of more adult readers. I am Dungeon Master. And folks, JJ and I now have a bonus segment for you in this episode, a little role-playing game or RPG inspiration. Both JJ and I are gamers, and as we were reading this graphic novel, we were both contemplating, hey, how would this story arc fit in a gaming scenario? For this, JJ, I'd like to turn it over to you. You have some very, very distinct thoughts on this particular matter well thanks for thanks for tossing this over to me i had considered this as we were reading it that this type of story is not one that you typically see in role-playing games well first off you've got a singular hero which definitely is a challenge in a role-playing game but for uh, this could just as equally be applied to a group of characters typically one week game we game in a group it's a reversal of fortune, right? And it's a how far down can you slide before you can turn yourself around? And I think one of the reasons why we see this so rarely is because it's really challenging to pull off. First off, you need to have player buy-in. As a player, do I want to lose everything that I've accumulated for my character. In most games, there's a lot of hardware, There's there could be treasure or monetary gains, there's equipment, there's all sorts of things, reputation, all sorts of things that the characters accumulate over time. And this type of story demands that you lose that. And as we saw in the first couple chapters of it, he was systematically losing piece after piece after piece after piece. So let me ask you as a player and also as a, as a game master, how would you feel if someone approached you and say, hey, we're going to take everything away from your character and then see how you how you react to that? What, what would you think as a player, Angus? It's interesting, JJ, and thanks for that question because I'll harken back to our latest session that we had. And my main motivator, around a table is collaborative problem solving. So I know there are many other players who are motivated by material gain or equipment gain throughout their playing experience. For me, I'm really not that much motivated by it. So if you are presenting this as a game master to me in the sense of, okay, I'm going to now make a very complex problem for you to be, have to solve. And part of that problem is stripping away your equipment, your treasure, your gear. Okay, I'm in. I'm in on that. I'll, I'll go down that road. Provided that you're giving me a framework with which to try to solve this problem and that it's done in a fair nature. If it's just purely to make my life as a player miserable around the table and not even provide me a shot to try to solve the problem, then you know that's just a miserable experience and not enjoyable whatsoever. However, I do not mind adversity. If adversity is thrown my way and thrown my group's way, and we're at least provided a fair construct with which to try to work our way out of it, then, oh my word, the phoenix rising from the ashes moment around that player table, if you're successful, nothing beats that. 
nothing beats that at all. So I I would actually welcome that, like I said, if done in a fair construct. How about you? I think the first thing to really think about is that challenge that you just mentioned. I know it's really difficult and and I know I would stop and think about it if if as a my character had accumulated a lot of items that I felt a strong connection to and would suddenly lose those. It could be a reputation, it could be a magic sword, whatever the case. You know, I kind of identify that. And it would be I think I would much rather that as a game master, the game master would come to me and say, hey, we're thinking of doing this, because then that gives me an opportunity to come to terms with it and to really see, you know, and kind of question, well, then what actually makes this character this character? So I think spinning it as an opportunity and really being able to say, okay, well, maybe I've up until now, I've defined this character by all the things that they have, as opposed to all the things that they are. So yeah, I think I would be open to it. If you came to me and said, okay, well, we're going to do this reversal of fortune and, and see how you, you recover from this. Yeah, I'd be open to it, but definitely I would much prefer that it's a collaborative experience, that game masters and players work together on that and understand what it is that they could lose and what they could actually gain from it. I think it might be important to say there's, you know, soft lines and hard lines in the sand, so to speak, where there are certain things that are so inherent to the character that there becomes some way of either being able to preserve those or gain those things back. Because then that can become a motivator. If there's that one thing that your character identifies with and that still remains, then that could be the thing that motivates you to come back up out of the pit or out of the despair or out of whatever reversal of fortune it ends up being. Indeed, JJ. And you're also king in on an important thing that underlies all of this, and that is the social contract around that table between the players and the game master. And that description right there of giving the characters a heads up that, hey, we're thinking about doing this. What do you think about this? Getting that kind of buy-in and, if you will, selling it well as here's an opportunity to excel given this bit of adversity that I'm contemplating throwing your way. Now, mind you, not providing spoilers, but providing the construct with which this would happen and how do your players feel about that. So then you're making sure that you're having a positive experience around that table and folks are finding it enjoyable, vice it being depressing and drudgery. Yeah, I want to point out one classic role-playing game series of adventures that actually used this to 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 some degree there was a classic series of modules a1 through a4 which were for dungeons and dragons first edition and through the series of those modules you're battling against these evil slave lords and i don't remember specifically which module it happens in but essentially at the end of one module the player characters are captured and then begin the next module as prisoners without any of their equipment and must escape. Now, this is during an era when in the D&D role-playing game, characters were probably more well-defined by what they had as opposed to who they are. Who they are wasn't reinforced mechanically in the game. That was more of what the player brought to the character and to the table and to the session. But here you've got a situation where they had to get out without any of their equipment. 
So it then forced them to basically rely on their instincts, whatever made that character be unique, and really, I think, tested the players. And so that's the point I kind of want to bring out is that I think something like this, this reversal of fortune, really tests the player and I think brings a whole nother level of interaction and engagement as a player at the table, which, you know, talk about it with your group. That, that could be something that could be really, really exciting to do. Obviously, it makes sense to do it when characters are maybe doing really well and maybe things are kind of seeming boring. This might be a way to shake it up and really set things off in a new direction. You don't know what you might realize about the character that you're playing until that happens. Indeed. Indeed. And JJ, I think that's a great point of and a way in order to mix it up around that table just so long as you've got that buy-in by both the players and the GM to collaboratively bring that experience to life. Agree wholeheartedly. So in conclusion, what would you like to leave our listeners with with respect to Daredevil Born Again? Well, I've said it several times in this review. This is a incredible example of just astounding visual storytelling in the classic American comic book style. There's action, there's grit, there's a definite aesthetic that ties the whole story together. And I really just think it's well worth your time to explore it and experience it. And then go back and look at some of Miller's drawings and works and see if you don't see the same similarities and the same feel in those stories as you do in this one. Yes, I think that's critical for folks to go back and explore Miller's earlier works, particularly on the Daredevil, incredibly well. Mazzuccelli maintains the integrity of that vision wholeheartedly agree, and I endorse 100% every one of your comments there. This is such an important story arc and work, considering that it was published at the exact same time as The Dark Knight Returns. It was really ushering in a new era in comic book characters in writing, in visual stylings, and foreshadowing where we would be heading in the mid to late 80s with respect to the entire superhero genre and ultimately the development of and emergence of the graphic novel coming into play and really setting the comic book world on fire, leading to the imprints that would happen within the big two and the rise of some of the independent or number three, four, and five publisher of comics over time. This is a really important, really influential work and is a must read if you are a fan of comics and comic book history in general. So with that being said, folks, we would love to hear from you. Please leave us a message via the Anchor app or Leave us an email at kirbyskidspodcast at gmail.com. And JJ, I want to thank you once again for coming in and providing the fantastic insights for our listeners. Oh, it's always a pleasure. I think the times that you and I get together and we get to talk comics are pretty cool. And I would definitely recommend that if folks want to join in on the conversation, follow those links. Come join us. We'd love to hear what your thoughts are on the stories that we're reading. Excelsior! We're Kirby's kids. Excelsior!